Today we're in the third week of a 10-week series on what a healthy and missional church is. And by healthy, we mean a church that is pursuing Christ. By missional, we mean a church that is pursuing Christ's priorities in the world. And over these weeks, we're learning what are the marks of that kind of healthy missional church. The first Sunday, we saw that a healthy and missional church has as its core the centrality of the Word of God. The Scriptures, they are our guidebook, our operating manual, our God-breathed informer and former of the life of the people who are the Church of Jesus Christ. It's the centerpiece that keeps us going in the right direction, doing the right things, being the right people. The second mark of a healthy and missional church is that it has a life-transforming walk with Jesus. Jesus, we take steps toward him together, toward him as a person in relationship, being vulnerable with our stories to one another of how we came to know him, things we've learned from him, experiences we've had with him, with other people, and he helps us to see and thus trust God more together as we share those stories. Please continue telling your stories. Take a risk. Tell them. And be eager to listen to other people's stories. It's a delight to hear. I had a privilege between the services this morning, young man I hadn't met yet, who came up and sat with me at the table. We were just the two of us. Everybody else had basically gone off to class, and he wanted to tell me his story. And I was able to tell him some of mine. It was a wonderful experience. Take the opportunity when it comes to do that. This morning, we're identifying mark number three. A healthy and missional church has an intentional and engaging witness. An intentional and engaging witness. We'll begin with the Old Testament brief flyover of some things you've heard before, some of them last week, and then on to a story in the New Testament. But first, what is the biggest two-letter word in the Bible? Anybody know? Go. Go. It is a big word, go. Because if you go, you've got to leave. If you go, things are going to be different. If you go, you may not know what you're getting yourself into. But it is the word that comes often in both the Old and New Testament, the word go. Listen to how it's used on several occasions. First, in the story of the children of Israel. Go is the word Moses used with Pharaoh when he said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. Oh, you're good. (laughs) And Pharaoh said, no. An external person of power. You keep doing that. I kind of like that. An external person of power would not let the people go. Moses sought to engage him with the claim of God that these people belonged to him. They need to go. Pharaoh did not believe Moses. Pharaoh did not believe in the God that Moses talked about. So God engaged Pharaoh over the next several months through Moses with a series of calamities. We know them as plagues. Following the tenth calamity, Pharaoh finally relented and let the people Oh, this interactive stuff is getting really nice. (laughs) 
Are there external forces that have power over you? Pharaoh was an external force on the people of Israel and said no, kept them from going until God shook him up enough. How about external forces like people in your life or circumstances or traditions or higher priorities that have kept you from going where God has called you to go and you know that he's called you? There are people to go to. There are things to become involved in. But something external has held you back. External forces. Many years later, Joshua and Caleb are among the 12 who are chosen to spy out the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised to give to them. And they gave a minority report, just the two of them. And Caleb said this in Numbers 13. Let us by all means go up, and we shall gain possession of it, the land, for we shall surely overcome it. And now the people responded, and they said, no, they wouldn't go. Internal forces are at work. Forces like fear or doubt, disbelief, would not let the people go. They couldn't blame it on Pharaoh any longer. It was themselves saying no. Caleb sought to engage the people in trust of the God that had freed them from Egypt and provided for them in the years in the wilderness. But because of their fear, their doubt, their disbelief, they were won over to disobedience to God's call in their life and they would not go. Are there internal forces that have power that are holding you back from being what God wants you to be and doing what God wants you to do? Are you fearful of change? Most people are. Is it holding you back? Is it holding Bethany back? Do you have doubt and disbelief that it is God who has called you or God who has called this church to something new, something more, something, I dare say, even better? And this isn't bad right now, but even better? If you were to be truthful, would you have to say that these internal forces have kept you from going where God has called you and or this church? Forty years later, Moses has died and Joshua is chosen as the leader of the Israelites. As God directs him, Joshua speaks to a whole new generation. We heard the wonderful storytelling last Sunday with Chris and Allie. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being borne by the Levitical priests, you shall move forward, follow it. The people were not asked for their opinion. There was no vote taken by the children of Israel at what Joshua had said. Instead, the people were simply instructed to follow God's lead. In other words, go with God. The people followed the ark and went with God into the land of promise. And we read in Joshua 3, And Israel, all Israel, crossed over the Jordan River on dry land. They went. Oh, it wasn't any easier when they got there. In fact, it was pretty brutal. But they followed God where he was leading. This new generation did. God has always been on the move. God does not settle for a place. God is constantly moving. Have you gone with God in the past? 
Do you have stories to tell about your past experiences with God as he's moved you from place to place, from people to people, from ministry experience to ministry experience? Are you letting him move you now? Or have you become settled? Is your legacy what you used to do? Or is it what you're doing? Are you going or have you gone? Those are the questions we need to wrestle with. Go is what Jesus did at the request of his father when he said, go and redeem them. He was in heaven. He didn't need to go anywhere. He's already where he was at the top of the ladder, so to speak. He didn't need to go anywhere else. But Jesus did exactly what his father said. And Jesus calls his followers to do the same in our world. Go and be my witnesses. But how are we to do that? I mean, where are we to go? What are we to do? What are we to say? And the kicker for me, who's going to listen to us anyway? Who will listen? I want to tell you the story this morning about one particular man in the New Testament that you probably haven't spent a lot of time with. He's not my favorite New Testament person. Barnabas is that. Well, Jesus, of course. But Barnabas, a guy I can relate to as really challenging my life. But I'd like to tell you a little bit the story of Philip because he's a man that learned how to go and go and go with God. A systematic problem had arisen in the early church. Some of the non-Jewish widows were being overlooked in the care that the church gave to women who had lost their husbands. The Jewish women were being well taken care of because they were related to the people who were in these young churches. But there were Hellenistic Jews, that is Greek Jews, who were being overlooked. They didn't have a, they didn't have a network of a family that they'd had for generations, but they had been one to Christ and were in the church. When this problem was brought to the leadership team, they suggested that the church appoint some people who would make sure that no one gets overlooked in the care the church sought to give to people in need. And we read in Acts chapter 6, this proposal pleased the whole group and that among others, Philip was chosen. They then presented these men, seven of them, to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Philip, called by his church, he accepts the call, he's consecrated to the ministry of care and his going was not to a place, but to a circumstance that needed help to do what God wants from the church. God wants people cared for. He didn't have to relocate. He just had to focus the care that he was called to on people who were being overlooked. We don't know how long that went well, but we know that bad times came very soon after that to the life of the church. Saul, a young zealot for Judaism, was on the rise. He was out to put an end to his upstart, this upstart foolishness or cult called Christianity. And Stephen, Philip's close friend and another one of the deacons, was arrested, was tried, was sentenced, and was stoned to death. And Saul was a major player in that whole move. It was shocking to the church. They were terrified. 
And there began an unleashing of persecution against Christianity that made many in the faith flee to other parts of Israel and either other parts outside of Israel in the world. Philip, the deacon, was one of those who left Jerusalem. We read in Acts 8.5, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Undoubtedly, there were other believers who went with him. And if we read Acts 8, we discover that Philip had significantly engaged that new community for Jesus and was used to build up the young church in that region. Philip did not stop being engaging and a witness for Jesus because of bad times. He just relocated and continued to care for people and serve his Lord and win as many as he could to Christ themselves. It was while Philip was in this Samaritan village that God called him to a particular mission. We find in Acts 8.26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So, here's Israel. It's long, relatively skinny. I'm doing it backwards so you can look like you're looking at the map. The Mediterranean is over here. <laughs> I had to look at your map for a minute. The Mediterranean is over here. Jordan is over here. The Jordan River runs. There's a big round thing called Galilee. There's a long strip called the Jordan River. Then there's a big oval, long oval, stretched out oval called the Dead Sea. And Jerusalem is in this area right here. Dead Sea's right here. Gaza is down towards the coast. That way is the ocean. I got so confused being on the back of your map. Oh, help me out, help me out. So Philip is called by God from this Samaritan village north of Jerusalem to travel to the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is on the coast. An angel of the Lord told him to go there. And Philip listened. He did what he was told to do. He went to the Gaza road. We don't know how long he walked the road. We don't know where he was on the road. All, all we know is that he went to the road because that's all he was told. He was told nothing else. And when he got to the place on the road that God wanted him to get to, although he didn't know it, God gave him more information. And in Acts 8.29 we read, The Spirit told Philip, Go to that chariot, that chariot, fill up that chariot and stay with it. Be near. Once again, Philip does what he's called to do and he goes over to the chariot and he listens. And we read in Acts 8.30 that Philip heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. We don't know how long Philip listened. But we do know that at some point he engages the man in the chariot with a question. Do you understand what you're reading? The man in the chariot welcomes him and he invites Philip to come up and sit with him to explain the text. From there we read just part of the conversation those two people had, total strangers, never had met before. But we know the result of their con conversation. The man in the chariot wants to be identified with the Jesus Christ that Philip is talking about. And so he says, I want to be baptized. 
Now let's be clear about what he's asking here. Yes, baptism can be an action in the church with the application of water. But there's a bigger view of baptism than that. In the Greek language, the word baptizo means the total and complete identification of one thing with another. When you totally identify with someone, when you totally identify with something, that's baptizo in its fullest form. So to be baptized in Christ is to fully identify with Christ. For Christ to have been baptized in the Jordan River is for him to be fully identified with us. He didn't need to be baptized for his salvation, for the forgiveness of his sins. He needed to be baptized to fully identify with us in a way we could understand. And this Ethiopian recognized he wanted to really be identified with this Jesus that he read about in the prophet Isaiah, and Philip filled in the blank spaces for him. And it says in the text, 838, Philip baptized him. So the ritual took place, but the real action was in wanting to identify with Jesus that had been explained to him by Philip. The man continues to travel home to Ethiopia, and Philip leaves, and in Acts 8.40 we read, Philip appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Now, one would think that's a great story about what it means to go, to listen to God, to engage with someone, to engage with circumstances in being one who gives care to people who are being overlooked, but then to engage with someone about the gospel. It's a series of stories. It's not just one, it's several. But as we continue to read in Dr. Luke's history of the early church, the book of Acts, we find Philip, the deacon, one more time. Paul and his companions are returning to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey throughout the Mediterranean basin. Listen to what we read in Acts 21. The next day, we reached Caesarea, and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. Do you know how significant that is? Let me help you. Philip's good friend, Stephen, was murdered by Saul, who became Paul. And now he welcomes this murderer in his home. Even though he had become a changed man, you can't escape the history of the trauma, the emotion, the brokenness, and the pain of this is the man that murdered my friend. Or can you? He did. I was a sophomore in college. I was very active in Youth for Christ in the city of Seattle. I was part of a singing group that um, helped lead the big rallies that we had once a month in downtown Seattle at the Moore Theater. And we had sung on a previous Sunday with this group, and one of my good friends there was Dan Wolf. And Dan had to leave right away after this concert we had on Sunday, and he went out to go to work. He worked at an all-night gas station making money as he was trying to put his way through school. And that night, his gas station was robbed, and he was murdered. 
He was the third murder victim in the city of Seattle by these two men that went out and robbed gas stations that were all-night stations. And to get rid of any witnesses, they just killed him. They finally caught them. And I'll never forget Dan's mother, who began a pilgrimage every month to visit these two men in prison. She led one of them to Christ. The other would never relent. I saw firsthand a person doing something I'm not sure I could do. I've, thank God, never had to have the opportunity to do that. But she set a tone very similar to Philip and brought one of these guys to Christ. And today, that guy, if he's still alive, is a free man. And if he's dead, he knows Dan firsthand in glory because of Dan's mother. Could we do that? I pray God doesn't have to call us to do that. But if he does, would we go? This is a full-orbed completion of what it means to be engaged with Christ. And Philip was fully engaged with Christ to the degree of welcoming his best friend's murderer into his home and being a brother with him. I think Philip had become very clear that the movement of God to spread the news about Jesus to many other places began with the murder of Stephen. And they had not gone out of Jerusalem yet. But when this persecution began, Philip and many others left Jerusalem and the story of faith got out of the big city. He ended up, as we said, in Caesarea. And in Caesarea, that was the seat of Roman rule in Israel. That's where the Roman leadership went. They didn't go to Jerusalem. They only went there for the big Passover feasts to guard the city and watch the people and keep them in line. Otherwise, they were in Caesarea Maritima on the coast. That's where all the headquarters were. And there's where Philip was with the Roman elite preaching the gospel. And by that time, he'd been given the gift of evangelism. It was that same movement that brought Saul to Damascus and on the road converted him to Jesus Christ when Jesus himself asked him, why are you persecuting me? And revealed to him the truth of who he was. And Philip recognized the grace of God not only holds no grudges, it also welcomes one who was a murderer into his home. That, my friends, is the full work of God, the complete cycle of intentional and engaged witness for Jesus Christ. That witness gives you the right to be heard. 38 times in the gospel, Jesus declares that he's been sent by Father God. In Luke 19.10, we read, Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he came. We're it. And everybody in the world is lost without Christ. Jesus is clearly sent by the Father to engage humanity and restore the relationship of their creation. But there's more. In his prayer for his disciples in John 17, Jesus is praying, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. That's us. He has sent us into the world. 
Then after being raised from the dead in John 20, 21, we read again, Peace be with you, Jesus says. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus came and keeps on coming. He longs to come through us, his intentional and engaging witness for the gospel. And he wants us to come with words, yes, but more than that, he wants us to come with a life. He wants us to come with care. He wants us to be like Philip, caregivers who end up having a story to tell. Stephen ministers who have a story to tell because they've been given the wonderful task of caring for people in need. The healthy missional church is filled with people who are intentional and engaging witnesses. People who go to others and attract them to Jesus Christ, not just because they know the good news story, but because they are good news. People are glad when good news people show up. How many of you like bad news people? Are you really drawn to people who just have nothing but bad news gossip to tell you? I, none of us do. We want to be with good news people, real people, honest people, people of integrity, but people who when they show up, you're glad they're there and you're with them. That's what God wants to do with us. That's the intentional engaging witnesses that he is looking for. That is our mission. It is the only mission given to the church. Oh, the style is the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the style. That's what makes you a good news person. But the only mission given to us is to go into the world and bring the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We are now in the ends of the earth. Who's engaged you and brought you into a deeper relationship with Christ? How'd they do that? What are things that happened to you from someone else that engaged you for Jesus? I've often wondered, who, who is it? I know who led me to Christ. I had several people working on me. I was a work. I don't know who led them to Christ. I would love to discover my family tree and which disciple or deacon does it go back to. That's one thing I'd like, you know, and, and all these tests you can take, the DNA tests, they won't help me with that. But which disciple began the tree that ended up coming to Craig? Which one did it for you? Wouldn't that be great to know that? It's one of the things I hope we get to experience in heaven, to see the faithful people down through the generations that brought the gospel to us. That's our mission now, to carry that on and be intentional, engaging witnesses, if necessary, use words, but good news lives for other people. That's our mission. Here's the question. Will we go? Will we? Really? Go? Let's pray. Holy and wonderful Father, you have always gone with us. Through your Son, you said nothing can separate us from you. Help us to go with you, to be a people, a church that becomes known as godly, as a people who are loving and forgiving and including, and yes, fun to be with, 
Help us to be intentional about our witness for your son. Help us to engage the people in our world for him, in our neighborhood, in our school, in our workplace. Help us to be good news people. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and our friend. Amen.